What do you get when two dudes who love Jesus and our masters at going with the flow get together? You get the Flow Podcast with J-Log and Marcus, where they discuss all things faith, life, and off the wall. Hello and welcome to Flow. Uh, I'm Marcus. I'm J-Log. And we have another special guest, and this one is a pretty big special guest. Yes, uh, but sir. before we get the introduction to him, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy, your grace, God. We thank you so much that, Father, you walk with us daily. You you pick us up when we fall. Father, you, you call out to us, Father, and I thank you for allowing us, allowing me, God, to hear that call, God, to answer Father, your will to live it. And Lord, we just thank you for this podcast. We thank you, God, for what you're doing with it and through it, for all the countries that it's in, that it's being listened to, Lord. We pray that you prepare the ears of those, uh, Father, that hear this message. We pray, ask that you be preparing their hearts, Father, so that, Father, something that is said, Father, will pierce their soul, that will make them understand that they neither need to grow closer to you or that they need to accept you. Lord, we ask all these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So our person that we have today is, uh, if you're a Kentucky Wildcat fan, you probably have heard the name at least. Um, but before, I'm not going to introduce him because Jason knows a lot more <laughs> about him than I do. Um, I'm going to let Jason, uh, J-Log take, take over. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a very big guest for us this week uh, from a, standpoint, a lot of different standpoints for me. Uh, one, from growing up uh, in the state of Kentucky and being a huge Wildcat fan and uh, two, more importantly for me here recently is, is uh, over the past few years, uh, this gentleman has a huge ministry going. Uh, he loves the Lord, and that's what prompted me to want to reach out to him to get him to be a part of the Flow Podcast. Uh, so without further ado, let's introduce today's special guest on the podcast, Mr. Cameron Mills, former Kentucky Wildcat uh, champion, two-time champion, I believe, Mr. Cameron. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Cameron, we thank you for being a part of the uh, podcast here, and let's get this thing started, Marcus. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. So, uh, let's kind of go into the first thing. Kind of introduce yourself to, uh, for those that maybe know your name but don't really know who you are. Uh, kind of do a little introduction of who you are, what's going on in your life, and then uh, we'll kind of go from there. Okay. Um, well, let's see. Um, I, I, I was, uh, I've been raised in Kentucky, um, grew up in a family um uh well I, i'm trying to think how to describe us uh my dad played at kentucky and so i definitely grew up in a basketball family um though basketball was never something that was either me or my brother um but uh once we decided for whatever reason that we wanted to play college ball kind of our relationship with our dad changed and um so i wound up um, playing and basketball was a huge part of my life for a long time um and then um Got to play at the University of Kentucky, uh, walked on, and then got a scholarship my junior year and senior year. Uh, was a part of two national championships, as you guys alluded to, um, during uh, it was in 1996 and 1998. So I was there during some very good years. Um, but when I was 12 years old, kind of um, – well, when I was 7 years old, I came to the Lord. And at 12 years old, I felt called to ministry. And so I kind of knew, even while I was at Kentucky, that – um, you know, this is all fun and I'm enjoying it, but this, I, I felt called to something completely different, um, or, or something very specific, I guess is a better way of saying it. Um, and so when I was, um, I always kind of thought I'd be a youth pastor though, to be honest, because with the exception of Christ and my parents, my biggest influences in my life have been three different youth pastors. And so I kind of thought, well, that's, that's what ministry will be like to me is it'll be, it'll be youth. It'll be, you know, the idea of going on ministry trips to Panama City Beach that always kind of appealed to me. And I thought, oh, that's real ministry. Um, and, but I just thought that's what I would do, be a youth pastor to church. And then when I got to UK, I, I started getting invitations from churches or ministries saying, would you come share your testimony? And simply because I was open about my faith, I'd get more and more of them. And by the time I was done playing ball, I had – now a lot of this was aided by the fact that we, uh, we, were on, we, had, we had such good teams in the 90s. And so – uh, my teammates and I were getting a lot of publicity and recognition, but I kept getting speaking engagements as a result of that recognition. And so I kind of had this platform um, that uh, was, honestly, I kind of think built by my teammates because, um, you know, I was I was an average player on a team of, like, you know, McDonald's All-Americans. But uh, we went to 
Final Fours, won two national championships, and now all of a sudden I'm getting more and more invitations to speak and to share my testimony. And so by the time, by the end of my career in 1998, I had uh, the foresight of some people in my life to create a nonprofit and then um, just to speak, just to continue to do what I had been doing, which was go out and speak at churches and ministries that today, for example, speak at uh, the uh, Hodgensville um, uh, Rotary Club. And um, so it's just been, it's been, it was basically 20, it was 22 years of basketball. And uh, now I'm 44 and it's been 22 years of ministry um, after that. So it's kind of just, that's all my life has been is, is a mixture of uh, basketball and a mixture of ministry. Perfect. That's awesome. So uh, to kind of get back uh, into your life a little bit, kind of, because, uh, I mean, you, you kind of stated it a little bit that you came to the Lord uh, when you were about seven years old. Seven years old, um, yeah. Kind of talk about that and, you know, what, what brought you to that that point in time. Um, and then we'll uh, go kind of from there from uh, your faith to maybe your life a little bit more, okay? Okay. So um, I, I, my mom and dad had us in church um, from as far back as I can remember. Um, and so, and I was the kind of the kid in church that, um, I, and I don't know why this was, but um, I, I honestly probably had a lot to do with my mom and dad. But I took, I didn't get up as a six and seven year old on Sunday mornings and want to go to church. I wasn't that kid, but I was the church. I was the kid that when I was in church, I took it seriously. Um, I kind of, uh, even though I was distracted all the time, I, I you know, I, I guess I was sincere in my convictions that, you know, the Bible was true and this, that, and the other. But it wasn't until seven that um, I accepted Christ. Um, and, it honestly happened because of school being canceled. School was out. I lived in Somerset, Kentucky, and school had been out for um, a snow day. It was a, a Sunday night, and I remember hearing that the, there was a possibility of snow coming. And so I remember praying, uh, God, you know, make it snow really hard so school's out. And uh, sure enough, the next morning, it was like two feet of snow on the ground and some, mm-hmm. something ridiculous. School's canceled, and now I'm thinking I've got 18 hours out in the snow and no school, and I get a day off. And instead, my mom decided kind of randomly – it seemed like to me that it was, in fact, too cold to go play in the snow. Um, so instead, um, I got to, quote, unquote, got to. I got to watch TV all day. So I decided, well, if I can't go play in the snow, I'll do that. And I went into her and my dad's bedroom and started looking for some sort of seven-year-old entertainment. And instead, she came in behind me, grabbed the remote control from me, and turned it to a televangelist and made this, like, final deal with me. And it was, like, 6.45 in the morning. Um, and I'm thinking I've got all day out in the snow, and instead it looks like all day in front of the television. And I thought watching whatever I wanted to watch, and she made this last deal with me. She said, if you'll sit still, because, again, I was, I, I was a very hyperactive child. Uh, if you'll sit still and listen at, to what this guy's saying, when this is over, then you can watch whatever you want to watch. And so we made that final little deal, and I'm kneeling beside my mom and dad's bed, kind of leaned up against it with my thumb on the channel changer, the remote, waiting to see credits for and I started listening to this uh, televangelist talk about knowing Christ. And it's the first time I remember understanding, I think, the gospel um, as, as it truly is. I mean, I'd heard people present the gospel because I'd been in church. But it was the first time that I, I remember understanding the difference between knowing who Jesus was and knowing Jesus. Up to that point, I simply knew who he was. I, Like I said, I took, took church seriously. So... I could tell you at seven years old, I could tell you about his, his miracles. I could tell you about his parables. I could tell you about his disciples, but I didn't know him. And I didn't realize, even though I'd heard the gospel before and I'd heard it put very plainly before it was like, seriously, in that moment by my mom and dad's bed, the scales fell. And I, I, I understand, Oh, I have to know him. I, I, I have to actually, I have to take Christ as my personal savior. I have to say that his death on that cross is for me, counts for my sin. Um, and that's when I did it. Um, I, 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 it's kind of, it's kind of one of those testimonies, one of those moments that I feel like, it, you know, in what, what's that, what's that, 24, so in 37, or, uh, yeah, 37, um, you know, I'm, I'm hazy on more and more details as I get older. Um, but that kind of sticks out in my mind. I, I know where it was, where I accepted Christ. I know why I did it. And, um, um, I, I guess I'm thankful for a mom and dad. And I, I don't, I guess I know I'm thankful for a mom and dad that, it was important to them that we were in church because being in church kind of laid the background of when I heard that televangelist speaking about Christ, I, I knew what he was saying. And I also knew, even though he wasn't ranting and raving about sin, I was completely overwhelmed with the idea um, because of the Holy Spirit moved that, Oh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm a sinner. I mean, this, this cross and this death that Jesus died, it, it wasn't for random people. It was for my sins. It was for 
you know, the world is. It's for your sins. And I just remember thinking and being overwhelmed the fact that if this person who died for me is knowable, why wouldn't I want to know him? So um, I said, I guess what we would call the sinner's prayer, or basically the seven-year-old prayer. Like I said, I, I, I'm a sinner, and I'm lost without. I'm, I'm lost in those sins, and the only salvation is is you, Jesus. And I asked Him into my life. Um, and I'd like to say I, I became this uh, perfect example of what a Christian should be, and um, that's not anywhere close to what happened. But it's kind of been this slow growth of towards. I'm slowly coming closer and closer, uh, hopefully, to what I'm supposed to be. That's awesome. That's awesome. I think it's kind of funny because uh, we've had a, quite a few guests on our on our podcast, and each one of them is, you know, I knew of Jesus, but I didn't really know Jesus. Uh, so I, I think it's kind of kind of awesome how that's a common theme in our in our in our listener or our, our guests. But um, so let's kind of fast forward into your life uh, and talk about Kentucky. Uh, so what brought you to Kentucky and kind of discuss a little bit your time there, being on the team, living your faith out and, and all that? Uh, well, what brought me here was two things. Number one, growing up in the state, it's hard to, um, it's, it's hard not to be involved on some level, um, either with the team or, um, as a fan or being involved with the, the, the fans. Um, and then add to that. So I grew up a Kentucky boy living in Southern Kentucky and UK basketball is everything. And then, Add to that, my dad played basketball at Kentucky back in the 60s. And so when I realized that, which I think was second or third grade, um, I just remember thinking I wanted to kind of live in, um, or, you know, kind of fill my dad's shoes and, and, and do the same thing he did, and, or follow in his shoes, I should say. And so that's what kind of led me to want to come to Kentucky. The problem was is that I was and, – and this is, this is kind of debatable, honestly. I, I was getting Division One scholarship offers uh, from a, kind of a various um, – an, an odd subsection of, um, of, of Division One, like there would be, you know, the Moorhead States and the um, Eastern Kentuckys, like the smaller D1 schools were offering me full rides. And then I'd have one or two of like the, you know, the big five. I had one or two SEC schools offer me a full ride. I had Louisville, I was their second choice at two guard. They had their first choice, which wound up saying yes to them. And if they, if he hadn't, then they would have offered me a full ride. But that, that was, that was, those were my, my offers. None of which interested me um, because I grew up in Kentucky. And so I've been offered these full rides to, um, you know, a couple of big D1 schools and a bunch of smaller D1 schools. Nonetheless, you know, full scholarships. And I'm just not interested at all. I mean, I know I'm going to go to – I know I know I'm playing college basketball. So when push comes to shove, I wouldn't have turned down any of those. Um, I, they came very close to signing with Georgia. And then on the day that I was supposed to sign, because Kentucky's not recruiting me. They're not interested. I – they were very aware of who I was. Um, I, they'd see me at Coach Patino's basketball camp every year. Um, and But they, they were set at two guard. As a matter of fact, one of my best friends happened to be the reason they weren't interested in me, and that was Jeff Shepard. They had Jeff, um, and they had Tony Delk, and then they had um, Derek Anderson and, and uh, Ron Mercer, who wound up playing more of a 2-3 hybrid. But, uh, you know, they didn't, need an, they, they didn't need another two guard, especially somebody that would have been, especially Kentucky, a project. Um and so I was getting ready to sign with Georgia because I wasn't going to turn down a, a, a full ride to an SEC school. And um, um, kind of, I guess it was out of desperation. My dad, again, because he played there, um, was friends with the equipment manager, Bill Kitely. And so, because um, Bill Kitely was the equipment manager when my dad was there, at least the assistant equipment manager. So anyway, long story short, dad calls Mr. Kitely. I think the reason or the, or the, the, the goal was – the fear was is that I, it was right before my senior year, and Georgia wanted me to go ahead and sign and be done with it. And my thinking was, well, what if I had this amazing senior season, and all of a sudden UK comes calling, and um, I've already signed with Georgia. Now, today, that's kind of a common thing. You see kids getting out of scholarships or commitments and stuff all the time. I, didn't, I don't think it worked that way back then, and I think if I signed, I, that was a done deal. Um, and so I just kind of had this honestly irrational and it was irrational, but this fear of what if I have a great senior season and Kentucky wants me and I'm ready to sign with Georgia. So he went down to ask him, Hey, is there any chance you guys would ever be interested? And basically the answer was no, but in the conversations with, um, Mr. Kylie and, uh, Billy Donovan, and then of course, coach Patino, the conversations, someone brought up the idea of, well, if he wants to come here that bad, why doesn't he just walk on? And we never consider it, considered it because we didn't know it was an option. And so when they made it an option, saying, yeah, absolutely. You know, if you'll pay – basically, Cameron's not good enough to waste a scholarship on, but he's good enough to sit the bench. So if he wants to come be on the team and wear the uniform and 
you know, where is his dad's or will let him do that, but you know, we're not going to, we're going to give a scholarship to a player who's going to help us win a championship. And that's, that's really what happened. And so dad came and got me out of school and told me about their offer. Um, and I, I, I was blown away. I didn't care if I had got a scholarship or not. My parents might have, but I didn't. To me, right. just, I was on the team, and that's what I wanted. Um, so, And they were just as excited as I was. So a day away from signing with Georgia, instead I decided to walk on Kentucky. Wow, that's that that that's interesting. That's that's you know, crazy. When you, when you start digging, I'm I'm sitting here looking at obviously looking at this from a fan's standpoint <laughs> and fan's perspective, looking back, and I'm like, all I keep thinking of is, what do you mean you ain't going to offer this guy something? This <laughs> man, this man can shoot. You're looking at you're thinking of who I was my senior year, maybe my junior year, which is actually a better year for me. No one, because no cared who I was my senior year of high school and I was I was a slow-footed white kid who couldn't jump who couldn't play defense who couldn't wasn't very good with the uh, off the dribble um just you know I, I was a decent player because I knew how to play the game but athletically I, I wasn't anywhere close to my teammates that I wound up playing with and I knew that even going in so when I did walk on um man I, I can't I can't even explain the, 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 the difference in talent between who I was my freshman year in the UK and who I had to guard my freshman year in practice in the UK, which was Roger Rhodes and Tony Delk and then uh, Ron Mercer and then Derek Anderson. And, um, you know, and then, and then sometimes it can switch and try to have to guard Walter McCarty and Antoine Walker and then um, uh, Anthony Epson, Wayne Turner. And I, mean, I just got abused every day in practice. And because of that, I got better. And so, and I, because you didn't have a choice. It's not like, I don't know if you all are Seinfeld fans, but there's a, um, one of the early, one of the early Seinfeld episodes, um, Kramer has these, uh, plyometric, he calls them shoes, which they actually existed. They, they we had them, we toyed with them when I was in high school. They had basically lifts on the toes. And so when you walked around, they, they were supposedly built up your uh, calf muscles. Calf muscles yeah. and so anyway, uh, Kramer's wearing these shoes and he says, He's explaining him to Jerry why what they are, and he says they're plyometric. And Jerry says plyometric. What do you mean? And he goes, the muscle has to grow or it dies. And it's just this funny little quip in Seinfeld that I thought, yeah, that's that's that was what life was like playing at UK. You either grow, you get better, or you die. And there's there's no choice. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so so hard. It's so look. I didn't. I've, I've not been in the military. I've not gone through. Um, uh, uh, um, basic training, but from what I hear from guys who have, this might have been as tough. The expectations were certainly similar, but it might have been as tough as basic training. It's just, it's four years of getting yelled at all the time, of having these tremendous pre- this tremendous pressure and expectations on you because you're a Kentucky ball player, specifically under Coach Patino, who just has this. He doesn't. He doesn't. You're not allowed to get away with a whole lot. I mean. You know, his practices were deathly quiet. There weren't guests in the chairs watching. It was just practice was a very serious three hours a day in which you were expected to be be there, be prepared, um, keep your mouth shut, listen to every coach say everything, even if they were coaching other teammates. And then you were expected to get yelled at. And when you got yelled at, you were expected to respond with, okay, I made a mistake and I've got to correct, correct it. And when you live under those, those guidelines, let's say, um, you, you can't help but get better. Um, and so I honestly don't think, like, if I'd gone to Georgia, and this is not to besmirch uh, the coaching staff that was there at the time, it wasn't Covey, it was actually Hugh Durham and his staff uh, when Hugh Durham was wrapping up his career. Um, if I'd gone there, I, I honestly don't think I would have become anywhere close to as good a place as I was because I think it was only Coach Patino who was going to get out of me what he got out of me because I didn't have a choice. It was either quit or get better. And honestly, I tried to quit five times my freshman year, and thankfully my mom and dad wouldn't let me. Wow. Wow. So going into this a little bit further with your time at UK as a basketball player and and being on the grandest stage of all, in, in my opinion, as far as college basketball goes, how was that for you being a, a young man of faith, being able to portray that, live it, and how did that work out with your teammates and things of that nature? Um, well, I, I was very, very, very blessed and fortunate because – I think number one, whether you're playing Division One basketball or not, if you grew up in a Christian household and grew up um, and faith is important to you, you know the moment you leave mom and dad's protection and you go out into the big world, um, and it, it is so easy to, you know, to lose your discipline because well, it's mom and dad's discipline that's been making sure I'm in church every Sunday. You know, even 
even you know under our house we're going to go to church that those were the rules and all of a sudden you get to college and you're like ah, it's sunday morning i just sleep in it's just that you know you don't have to take your faith as seriously and only your faith can can um can help you do that um so that was i think that's a problem for for a lot of a lot of kids when they get to college is all of a sudden they you know they're getting attacked with some ideas that aren't exactly what they've grown up with and so they can very easily lose um their beliefs and then you know, if they're not being discipled and they're not corporate uh, worship and not doing those things, it's even easier. Um, but I was fortunate because on my team, um, starting my freshman year, I had at least at least two guys per team um, and one guy consistently that shared my faith. So I had accountability, and I had I was never alone um, in my faith at UK. So. If I was struggling, if I was having problems with doubt, with fear, with um, lust, with, um, you know, if I wasn't being, uh, if I wasn't um, as boldly sharing my faith as I should have, or, or maybe that I should have, I always had a guy named Jeff Shepard right there who told me accountable, and vice versa. Um, and then add to Jeff, uh, I had Walter McCarty on my team, uh, who's a believer, um, and then uh, Mark Pope, who's a Mormon, um, but was very serious about studying the Bible, um, and very similarly lived a very similar lifestyle to Jeff and I, um, you know, I had Mark there as a friend. So you had at least three guys on my freshman year who, you know, Mark may be a slightly different faith than Jeff and I, but we took our faith very seriously. Um, and then when Mark left after, I think, what, my junior year, my, my sophomore year, um, it was just, it was Jeff and I. And, you know, Jeff and I shared the exact same faith. And, um, I, I, I can't imagine going through college without Jeff being there. I mean, it just, it would have been so much harder. I would, I would have failed a, a whole lot more, um, in, um, in being who I feel Christ wanted me to be. And I failed enough as it was, but without Jeff being there as some kind of accountability partner, I don't know that I held him to the same. Um, I don't know if he'd say the same, but I, I definitely, you know, just knowing that Jeff, Jeff is a Christian and he takes his faith very seriously. And I don't want him to see me fail because he knows I take my faith seriously. And so it's like I didn't want to disappoint him as a teammate because that's always there. But I also didn't want to disappoint him as a believer because um, I knew how serious he was. And, you know, it wasn't just as far as standing out and, and or standing to the side and having these expectations of accountability. It was we, we would have conversations all the time um, about our faith, about what matters to us. We testify back and forth about things that were going on in our lives. Um, a lot of times, just simply is how blessed are we to be able to play basketball for <laughs> the University of Kentucky. Um, but that's you know that that's what helped me a great deal. Uh, we went to FCA together. We did a there was a team Bible study which uh, Walter attended, Mark Pope attended, Jeff attended, Derek Anderson occasionally came to. Um, that was run by a guy named Max Apple who used to be the state director of the Christian athlete. So th- we were involved, and that that kind of group and FCA in particular kind of became our church. That's where we went. On Thursday nights, as opposed to Sunday mornings, that was that was where we got fed. And if we weren't getting fed, you could tell it in our lives, or at least I, I just speak for myself. I, I could see it in my life, and my mom and dad, and people close to me, certainly could see it too. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, let's kind of talk about uh, your game-winning shot that everybody talks about in Kentucky. Um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, because there's, I mean, there's thousands of kids who, in their driveway, count five, four, three, and they they try to live it out, but you actually did. Um, how talk about the play? Was it drawn up that way? Um, and then, but also like, you know, be, being a believer, a believer. How, how do you not let that that kind of spotlight go to your head and kind of mm. and uh be, and I guess stay humble. I guess. Uh, so kind of talk about that. Well, um, all right, so uh, let's go back. I, should, I presume you're talking about the Duke shot. Yes. Of course. Um, well, so here's the thing about the Duke shot, and I mean this, I mean all this sincerely. I appreciate um, that everybody remembers it. Um, <laughs> what is funny to me, though, is everyone remembers it wrong. Okay. Um, so because number one, everyone's like you just did, and, and, I, and I get it because, honestly, if I hadn't watched it a thousand times on replay and video, I probably would have forgotten the details too. Um, <laughs> um, it wasn't a last-second shot. It was actually a shot with two minutes and thirty-five seconds left. The reason it mattered, and there's honestly, I debate all the time whether or not it truly mattered. Anyway, I guess it did in the sense that it gave us three more points, but it didn't win us the game because what it did is cap the comeback. So we were down seventeen with nine and a half minutes left, 
and uh, Wayne Turner and Ashimu Evans and Shep and uh, Scott Padgett, they're and Najee Muhammad. They're battling to get us back in the game. I'm over sitting on the bench pouting because I'm thinking this is my last game. I'm done. We're down nine. We're down 17 with nine minutes. That's a game. So I've quit basically. My teammates thankfully haven't. And all of a sudden, with you know, they start making this amazing, amazing comeback out of nowhere because we were playing terrible that game. And then all of a sudden, Wayne Turner takes over, and we just, you know, we start hitting threes. Duke starts missing shots, and so we're back within, I think, two. And the play wasn't drawn up that way because it was a broken play. Mm-hmm. Um, Wayne, Wayne was scoring at will almost against Steve Wojciechowski, and so Wayne penetrated um, down the right hand side because he kept just he was just taking uh, Steve off the dribble all the time and scoring. Um, and then occasionally we kick it out and we hit a couple of things. But, so he dribbles down the right hand side, um, misses a shot. Evans can't rebound it. He can't get it in fully on the ball, so he very wisely just backs it. He just completely backs it with his left hand, back out towards the top of the key, and I'm honestly just standing there. Um, the ball, it, 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 he could not have thrown a better bounce pass um, if he meant to. And the ball clicked. It bounced right under the arms of Scott Padgett, who was reaching for it, right up to me, and, and I was I caught it and was had a shot release within a second. Um, it went in, and so now we're up one. What everyone tends to forget is Duke came right back and took the lead from us on the very next possession. And if it wasn't for Scott Padgett's three with about, I think it's about 44, 45 seconds left in the game, we lose. My shot means nothing. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I'm happy. I'm thrilled to talk about it. I'm I'm proud that I hit it. Um, but to me personally, what it was more exciting is that was the first basket I had hit in the entire 1998 NCAA tournament. I didn't yet. That was the fourth game. And I was a big offer, and all of a sudden, oh, finally. Um, <laughs> it just so happens that it, okay, half that comeback, and all of a sudden we're back in this game. Um, but Scott's shot was actually more important to us. Um, Wayne's play was the reason he won. The, the funny thing is, is that because of a Sports Illustrated photographer who snapped his remote release from um, a camera he had put up in the rafters, literally in the rafters of the Alamo Dome, or I'm sorry, in St. Petersburg, uh, the, the uh, I guess, Houston, whatever they called it. Um, uh, or Tropicana Field, that's what it was. He put that camera in the rafters. He snapped it right at the apex of my shot. So I'm getting ready to release it. You've got all 10 guys in the picture. And that photographer turned out to be a Christian as well. And so when I called him, and actually it wasn't even me, it was a friend of mine, or at the time just a guy, who called and got permission from that guy to, he got the rights to the picture. And so this guy who used to have an art gallery at Fayette Mall started selling these prints. He's the one that dubbed it, got her to cross the bluegrass. Um, and then started selling it. And basically it's kind of this, it was kind of this, the shot happened. It, it did count, but the lore and the legend behind it's kind of been, um, I don't know what, what it's, it's kind of been branded uh, um, inaccurately. Um, it did, it did give us the lead, and it was the first time we had led in the game. I'll, I'll, I'll admit that. But it's just it, – it, the picture kind of made the moment a bigger deal, I, I think, than the shot was in the moment. In the moment, I don't think anyone thought – was thinking after the game when we were celebrating, we weren't celebrating my shot. We were celebrating Wayne absolutely destroying Wojciechowski in the second half and, you know, Scott's three-pointer that won us the game. There just wasn't a picture of Scott's shot the way there was of mine. And so I got the benefit of all this attention – based off a photograph instead of just <laughs> the shot. Yeah, Scott, I remember that whole game. <laughs> I mean, if, if, what? I said, I, I'm fortunate enough to remember that whole game. So, yeah, uh, I think... Well, but, but what's funny is I, I hear from people all the time who'll do the same thing. They say, I remember... Or I'll, it's usually, you know, I'll never forget where I was. And then they'll, you know, I'll never forget where I was when you hit that shot against Duke. And then they'll proceed to describe the shot, you know, in great detail. And every detail they describe it in is wrong. I'll never forget where where I was when you hit that 35-footer with one second left to go to beat Duke. And I'm like, none of that's right. I mean, it wasn't a 35-footer. It was right at the top of the key. It wasn't one second left. I mean, it's like, I'll never forget where I was, but they forget every detail about the shot. They they just kind of – it's grown greater and greater over the the years. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was just – I think the reason it was big for me and the way that I looked at it like that is because, like you said, it was our first lead. Yeah. It it was we're 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 beating Duke. Right. We're it it was the sign of hope that uh, up yeah. and, up until that point because we hadn't led. No, and, not only that, but if you remember the the first three games of that tournament, we destroyed everybody. We were on like a six game 
honestly, I think we were on a 14-game winning streak, or that's what it wound up being. But we had, from the start of the SEC tournament, we were beating everybody by, like, 30 points. Yeah. All the, we beat, the game before Duke, we beat UCLA by 30 points. And also, we get to Duke, and we're getting blown out. And it was just a weird feeling, and that's when, you know, thankfully we had some leadership in Jeff and Scott and Wayne who would not let us lose. And so that's, you know, that's where we got the nickname Comeback Cats. It started with that Duke game. So it was, yeah, the, the Duke, the fact that it was Duke doing it to us made it um, especially smart. But for me personally, it was that we were getting blown out. That hurt. And then we were getting blown out in what would have been my last game ever. And so that was kind of um, extra sour. So, I mean, all that stuff, um, but it just it, – I guess it's what made it so sweet to win. And then, of course, going on and win that championship uh, made it even better because it'd been nice to beat Duke. Um, and then, you know, maybe if you don't don't win our first final four games at Stanford, that'd have been nice. It, it would have been nice. It would have somehow, I guess, um, it would have taken care of the 92 game against Duke. But doing that and then winning the championship it just made it that much better. Yeah, and it's funny that you say that so many people got it wrong because I was only like eight years old when you shot that yeah. shot. So everything that I've been told has just been what I've been told uh, and what I've seen in, in pictures and things like that because I didn't, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't remember, remember no. what I was eating at eight years old. So yeah, it's funny can, that you say that the details you go, are wrong. You can, go, you can actually go to YouTube. You can actually go to YouTube and watch the last, watch the comeback. Yeah. Um, from the time down 17 to the end of the game. And it's, it. I've actually, I, I did it more recently. I actually literally just watched the comeback. I didn't watch the game. I watched the comeback, and I still got chills because I don't remember how we erased the 17-point lead. And it's watching us do it um, was – I mean, it was a clinic in basketball. It was absolutely amazing. Um, but like I said, if it wasn't for the video, I, I, I wouldn't remember any of these details about it. Mm-mm. No, I mean, it's – for me, I, it was watching that and being down by 17 and – I'm thinking to myself, as we start approaching the comeback, I'm thinking about the LSU game, and I'm thinking about, is this really going to happen? Is it a possibility? <laughs> and then then that's, just from a fan standpoint, that's why everybody misconstrues what he's saying, is because when he hit that shot, it was like, all right, now we're ahead. Now we're we got this. We got now this. we've won. Yeah. Now we've won. Right. Yeah, yeah, now we've yeah, got this. So, yeah. But, uh, now what... A quick question for you, real quick, Cameron, on on your life as a as a ball player with your teammates. We've heard a little bit about your faith and how it, it seemed to be respected, and you had accountability partners and things of that nature. How were, were how were you seen on campus? I guess was it? I that, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I, 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 I guess, I guess, well, I, I, I tell you two things. Number one, I guess we would all hope that we're seen sincerely like that, you know, because it's an easy thing for people who don't share our faith to, you know, the moment we mess up, the moment we fall short to take our entire faith and say, you see, it's not sincere. See, they don't mean it. You see, it's, it's hypocritical, which is an unfair and absolutely unfair um, uh, take on it. But I, I'd like to think that I was seen as someone who, if, you know, said this is what I believed and then very much tried uh, to live it as best I could. Now, I still failed because becoming a Christian in no way makes you perfect. Right. Um, and on, other than a spiritual sense in the eyes of God, but it doesn't, it, I'm still going to mess up. And that's that's the whole um, strain of, um, of, of being sanctified. And, and it's going through, a, okay, now I've got the ability uh, to live as Christ lives, um, but. I'm still fle- I'm just, I'm still in my flesh, and my flesh, you know, at various times in my life, had a great control over my of my life. Um, so I I hope I was seen at least sincere, and that I sincerely believe or live my life as though I say I believe it uh, right. or what I believe. Um, but I'll also tell you this: uh, in one in one way where I failed, um, and the uh, the rebuker was um, my uh, college, my high school and college girlfriend who I dated for six years. And she and I were kind of at the end of our relationship, and she—I I can't remember exact details—but basically, we were having an argument one time, and she just kind of stopped and said, "You know, you're not the same sweet Cameron I fell in love with in high school." And, and that crushed me because number one, I think I knew it was true, and I think one of the things I did, as far as my arrogance, because I did—I mean, I, I you, you spend four years on a college campus as part of a basketball team and a basketball team that won two championships over 
four years, and you do. You you get all this attention, even from the professors. I, I walked into a, one of my classes one time. This was a couple weeks – or actually, I think it was the first class after the 98 championship. Um, and I walked in, and I've got a professor who's got 17 posters there she, they, they want me to sign. And I'm sitting there having to embarrassingly sign these posters with classmates staring at me. Hmm. Um and uh, the professor still wound up giving me a C somehow. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so you know that. So my girlfriend says this to me, and I'm I, it cut because I knew, dang it, she's I, I'm not. I mean, I if I compare myself to my teammates, I mean, I had I did I love my teammates, but I had some very arrogant teammates. Um, they came in arrogant. They came in as McDonald's All Americans, and they were going to take the world by storm and go to the NBA within years. I mean, they just they were very cocky people. Some of them, and so I would always compare my humility to this well you know, i'm not this guy i mean i don't think i'm I don't, I don't think i'm as good as this guy thinks he is and um and so if i if i did it that way and i compared myself to certain teammates well yeah i'd come across looking pretty good but that's not how we're compared we're compared number one to christ and then number two we're compared to who we were yesterday and so if you compare who i was to christ i absolutely was more arrogant than i should have been and if you compare who i was to who i was before i got to the uk i absolutely you know this, this kind of arrogant um i guess he's an arrogant basketball player um and that was one thing that you know thankfully that that that, that girl um said that to me it stung when she said it but i knew she was right um and so one of the things that bothered me over the course of my four years is i think about who i was as a freshman where I, when i was i came in with no real hope of ever playing i was on the team but wasn't going to play and wasn't, I mean, I had no idea I wound up having the career I had. And then I look at who I was as a senior and I, I had become just a, just a cocky kid and, and, and I wasn't proud of it. Right. I mean, that's, that's huge, man. That's, that's deep. Uh, it yeah. hit, definitely hits on a different level uh, from the aspect because you don't, honestly, you don't stop and sit and think about that. At least I haven't. I don't when I'm looking no. at them, and I'm watching, I'm watching the cats play on TV. I don't, necessarily think about their their personal lives when they're on campus how they're viewed right. how they're looked upon what they have to endure when they go in classrooms the yeah. or go out to eat or go i mean do anything and well yeah. all you all get to see and this I, I tell fans this all the time because we make these crap judgments on these kids of which we get a 0.9 or 0.5 percent look in on their lives right i mean they, their lives are are, are uh, broadcast all over the country um a, total of about six hours a week right i mean right. typically three games a week um and so we think we know who they are based on you know th that two hours a day so to speak in fact we don't even know what kind of basketball players they are based on that because we don't get to see the other 90 percent of the time when they're actually out there practicing so right. there's, there's a lot more that goes into it and, and we don't tend to think about what they're going through we tend to think well, they're privileged. Well, they're they're spoiled. Well, they're you know they they live like kings. And I'll be honest, at Kentucky, we did, and they do. But there's that other part of it is that there's still so much pressure that are on these guys, and right. not not all it's self not all it's self pressure. There's you know a lot of it's coming from their coaches, and a lot of it's coming from um, a lot of it's coming from uh, um, the fans. Right. You know, I mean, because UK fans, they realistically. Um, a lot of them, at least, anyway, they expect a national championship every year, and that's just not realistic. <laughs> no, no, it's not. I mean, I, I'll tell you, it's definitely the the vibe from us, <laughs> but, yeah. But, yeah. but the actuality uh, is is obviously not well, there. Well, think, think of it this way: Kentucky basketball has been around 115 years. Mm -hmm. We've only won eight. Right. That's not one every one year. That's no. one every 14.5 years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's it, it's funny now sitting back because. You know, I, I was I played baseball in high school and this that, and the other. I wasn't very, mm -hmm. you know, so I didn't get to. I just wasn't that talented to go even think about doing things. And then uh, my son is a <coughs> my son is a junior at the University of Kentucky now, and okay, and he foregone he he, he could have went and played ball other places. A lot of minor D one, I mean D twos, and he had like a walk on opportunity with Austin P and uh, uh, who did Kentucky just play in the tournament Wolford is that it Wolford Wolford yeah he, he could have went out there and played yeah. uh, on scholarship and stuff but he he's he's always wanted to go to UK and stuff and and things so that's that's what he chose to do and he's uh, trying to achieve his degree and things but one of the things that we talk about kind of going the long way around about getting to it is is 
you know, I'll, I'll ask him, you know, do you see a lot of athletes on campus? And if so, uh -huh. you know, how do they act? Are they friendly? Uh -huh. are they, will they talk? Will they just, you know, this, and he's like, dad, they're dad, they're normal people like we are. They're not, <laughs> they're, they're not beyond, you know, touch. He said, you know, he's, he's actually talked to a few of them before and, and stuff. So it's, it's just yeah. kind of interesting to hear from an actual athlete standpoint, being in Cameron and then from an outsider, such as Tyler, my son, that, that sees him on campus and talks yeah. to him on campus. How, yeah. how it works. Yeah. And I think, honestly, the answer to that question, how are they, kind of just varies. I mean, it just depends on how they were raised and what kind of personality they have. Some of them, honestly, I had teammates who a lot of people thought were, you know, arrogant when in reality they were just shocked. You know, mm. they, they, they wouldn't necessarily engage you in conversation. And it wasn't because they thought they were better than you. It was because they were introverted and they felt uncomfortable talking to strangers and people they didn't know, even about things that they loved, which was basketball. So it's one of those things that kind of depends on who, who it is, is, whether or not they'll, you know, are, are friendly or kind or nice or maybe quiet. Right. So, uh, okay, so let's fast forward a little bit more into your life. College is over. Um, and let's kind of talk about what you're doing now because you've started your own ministry. Um, kind of talk about what brought that about and what you guys do as a ministry. Well, first of all, there's no day. Um, okay. <laughs> it's just me. Um, I, as, as a matter of fact, I don't I'm trying to think about five years ago. Um, I, uh, my assistant, uh, took another job and I just decided, okay, um, I, I'll handle it, which was a crazy idea at the time because I'm terrible at organization. Um, <laughs> but I thought, well, I mean, I just thought, okay, what the ministry was in 1998, 1999, 2000, um, it was never big. It was just, I would, I'd get invited to speak at a lot of different places, all of it completely based on, um, notoriety from basketball so churches would ask me to come and share you know come share and the the leaders of the churches were expecting and even you know like you know you're going to come share your testimony you're going to come share christ absolutely that's the whole point of the ministry but i can't tell you how many times i left a church you know shaking hands with people as they exit and this and the other and one of the most common comments i got was i expected to hear a lot more about kentucky and i thought that's the point you came to hear about kentucky basketball I'm not here to share Kentucky basketball. I'll, I'll allude to it, but that's not the point of the ministry. The point of the ministry, the point of the ministry was um, uh, I, I, I felt called since I was 12 years old. Um, I felt called to share Christ. Um, and so one way or the other, I had to figure out a way to do that. And then, and like I said earlier, I didn't know what that was going to look like. I thought I was going to do youth pastor the church. And then all of a sudden this Kentucky basketball thing happened and I started getting invitations to fill pulpits and, and, you know, be the, the, the keynote speaker at a, you know, Disciples Now weekend or a, this, that, you know, um, even some um, festivals and stuff. So that's where it started. Um, it's become something that I'm, like when I started in 1998, I had a vision of what I wanted the ministry to be or who I wanted to be as a communicator. Um, and again, back to the arrogance thing, my vision for that was completely based off ego and wasn't based off one of the most common questions I'd get asked, and I think it was, they were, it's a well-meaning question, but it's, where do you see yourself in five years? I, I still get that question sometimes, and it drives me nuts, because I shouldn't see myself anywhere in five years, because I don't have control over where I'm going to be in five years. I mean, it, it, it's, it's one of those leadership-type questions, and, you know, you should be planning for the future. And that's all well and good and fine, but the bottom line is, my job is to be following Christ. And so, where I am in five years is totally and completely dependent on what he wants for my life. As long as I'm in his will, I don't have any control over that. So how could I possibly know where I'm going to be in five years? Um, but when I was early in this ministry, I had a, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted, where I wanted to be in five years. And it, it was, again, based completely off ego, which I think is what happens when you, you personally decide where you want to be. Um, I'm thankful that a lot of, I guess it, it's all relative, but a lot of like struggles happen. And I, everybody goes through this, every preacher, every minister, every person goes through this. And I went through divorce. I mean, I went through a very hard divorce. Um, two years, just two years in a ministry, I got married. And two years later, uh, yeah, three years later, three years later, I'm divorced. And my biggest concern was, number one, you know, my wife um, who left me and, and divorced me. But then the second thing I worried about was, what, this, what is this going to do to my ministry? I mean— Am I going to get invited to churches as a divorced uh, person? Um, and it, it was one of those things where 
that never turned out to be the case, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, but what really happened to me is all of a sudden I realized I was taking ministry – I was taking myself in ministry way too seriously. I mean I, I started believing that whether or not someone got saved or came to the Lord at a particular evening that I preached where I preached was completely dependent upon how good I was as a preacher. And that's, that's ridiculous thinking. It has nothing to do with how good I am. No one's, no one's, no one has truly gotten saved because of the giftedness of the preacher. No one. The only time you're saved is when the Holy Spirit brings you to salvation. Amen. So, but I started believing that, oh, I, you know, I, I've got to be charismatic and I've got to be um, sincere and I've got to be serious and I've got to, you know, I wouldn't say I was ever a hellfire damnation preacher, but I was a very, I preached angry sometimes when I was young. Um, I think honestly, out of the part of a good place, I wanted to see people come to Christ. But I think a lot of it too was I wanted to see people come to Christ after I preached. And that's just selfish arrogance and stupid. Um, and yeah. so over the last 20 years, what's been awesome is, and honestly, it was a weekend that happened, and I'll tell the story quickly. But um, about, I, I want to say it was after my divorce, it's probably 2003, 2004. I'm preaching. Um, a Saturday night, Sunday morning at a church, um, and I don't even know where it was, um, but Saturday night I preached and honestly felt like it was the best sermon I'd ever preached in my life. Um, still, even now, tw you know, <laughs> looking back 15 or so years, still think it probably was one of the best sermons I've ever preached in my life. I mean, I was pulling illustrations out of left field. I was, there were scriptures that were coming to mind that were perfect and things I hadn't even prepared to use. But everything just worked, and it was like this concise, brilliant message. I gave an invitation, and nothing. I mean, bubkis. I mean, absolutely just, I mean, nothing happened. And I got angry. I got angry at these people I just preached to. I got angry at God. I got angry at the pastor. I was just angry because they rejected my words. And that's the truth. That's why I was angry. The next morning, I had to preach to these people again. And so I got up frustrated with them. I went to that church building that morning frustrated with these people because how dare they reject my brilliance the night before. Well, that morning, turns out, I just happened to preach the worst sermon I've ever preached in my life. I actually asked them to turn their Bibles to a, a verse, and I don't remember what verse it was. Let's say it was John 3.16. Instead of saying, everyone turn, John, turn to John 3.16, I said, everyone turn to John 16.3. So I transposed them and wound up reading a passage I was not prepared to preach on. And so instead of just laughing at myself and admitting, oh, my bad, everyone, I meant John 3.16 or I meant whatever, my arrogance takes over. And I think, okay, I'm not going to admit a mistake in front of all these people. So we're going to just keep reading until I find a verse I feel like I can, just, I can do justice to in about 20 minutes. So two and a half very uncomfortable minutes or chapters later, I finally come to a verse. That I think, oh, I, I can do something with this. And, of course, I couldn't. I mean, I was, I was all over the place. I was... I, I mean, it was terrible. I look in the front row, and the pastor who had so kindly invited me to come preach, he's in the front row with his head in his hands. I mean, embarrassed for, on my behalf. It was that bad. And I wrap up that sermon um, as soon as I – I mean, it, it's going so poorly. I'm like, i got to get off the stage. And so I wrap up that sermon, give an invitation. I turn around after I walk back, and there are more people at the altar than there were in the pews now. Mm. And I'm sitting there now completely – I, I want to say I'm confused, but I wasn't. It was like this immediate – um, it was very clear to me what had happened. This was, he doesn't need me to be great. He just needs to be great. Mm -hmm. I, I don't need to preach great. I need to preach him great. And that's all I need to do. Amen. And when I realized that my preaching changed, my attitude towards ministry changed. Um, and I say the preaching, it took so much pressure. Off me because I, I actually, you know, I, I got into the pattern of believing, man, if, if, if I'm not at my best tonight, Maybe they're not going to hear the truth. Maybe they're not going to hear the gospel. If I don't share, very clearly share the gospel, maybe they won't hear it. I mean, I started thinking so much of people's salvation was determining, or was determining how good of a preacher I was. And that's just nonsense thinking. But it, it took him, it took a weekend for him to break me of that. And then hopefully continuing to break me for the last uh, 15, 20 years after that. That's awesome. That's awesome. And isn't it, isn't it just a true testament to when you think you got it all figured out on your own god god decides <laughs> yeah. to spank you <laughs> right and yes he... and you know what that's yeah that, and i love the way you put it because that's exactly what it is i hate the phrase constructive criticism mm -mm. all criticism all criticism is constructive yeah. if taken the right way absolutely I, it yep. doesn't matter how it's meant it doesn't matter if the person who's correcting you has ulterior motives they just want to hurt you it doesn't matter mm -mm. 
job is to take everything that you're being told and say, okay, if it's true, and if it's true of me, it doesn't matter how it's presented to me. I need to internalize it and I need to correct it. Absolutely. And otherwise, uh, otherwise, I'm not. I'm staying the same. And I think now that I'm 44, my biggest fear is that I'm the same today as I was yesterday. I want to get. I want to be better. And the only way I'm better in every area of my life. My wife and I were talking about this uh, last night. Um, actually, we talked a lot about it since we've been married. Is we both want to be very self-aware people, and we both want to take every advantage of, you know, not just from each other, but here being able, listening to people, and being able to be corrected. Because I think that's one of the most frustrating things now, and I'm guilty of it in my past, and I'll probably be guilty of it again. But we live in a day and age where no one wants to be told they're wrong. No. And it, that's fine. I get it because the problem is it's her ego. And if your ego is so is so shallow that just being told your, your information is incorrect or you're incorrect or you're behaving incorrectly, if that so hurts you that you're going to instead of internalizing it and ask yourself if it's true for you, you're going to rebel against it and say, well, what about you? And what if you do that? That's not you learning. And that's not you, you know, becoming a better person. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it's been one of the great things about Susan, my, my new wife is she's like that. I mean, she kind of makes me want to be more like her in this way of like, you know, she just, she, I've, I've known her for a year now. We, 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 um, actually, I think, um, we started dating last October. So we're coming up on our, our <laughs> dating um, anniversary next month, but I've known her for just about a year. And she's one of these people that I've never had a conversation with her. We've never had an argument. I undoubtedly believe we will, but we haven't had one yet. And if it's because we both listen to each other and right. there's, there's no desire to win the argument. It's a desire to really hear what the other person's mm -hmm. saying. And I don't, I don't think I was mature enough to have a relationship like this when I was younger. As a matter of fact, I think there ought to be a law that no one should be allowed to get married until they're 35. Because I don't believe anyone under that age is truly mature enough to have be in a relationship and cohabitate with another fallen human being. Well, I, I would agree with you on that, from a standpoint that it's, it's taken forever, you know, for me to, for me and my walk to get to where I am right now. And, yeah. and, and, and part of part of being a Christian is is. Admit, being able to admit your faults and be able to admit your growth and your abilities and this, that, and the other. And it's it, it's here yeah. recently that God is, you know, I'm thinking I've got all my life in check right now, except what we were just talking about, about my, as far as my relationship with my wife, you know, it was because yeah. of God that we met. But, yeah. but on the flip side of that, we've been married for 20 years. I'm 43, yeah. I'm 43. <laughs> yeah. And, and it just hit me the other day. God, I was like, out of everything that's going wrong, there's the one area of my life that mm. that that is just that should be okay, that is struggling. And God was like, "Well, it's struggling because it's not centered and focused on on me. So therefore, you leave vulnerability <laughs> yeah. out there." Yeah. And so, hearing you say that, man, speaks speaks volumes to my heart. And, and yeah, and I appreciate it. Well, I just think about was it is it James chapter four? You know. Um, humble yourself right it's like right. it's our it's our responsibility there's so many things that god will give us and god, god will bless us with and god will god will do for us in our lives right right um you know but there's this there's these two things um that i, I made two verses i can think of that that's that center around humility and humbleness and they both same that they both i think specifically and intentionally say the same thing and it's james 4 um you know humble yourself inside the lord Right. It's your, you, it's my action. I'm to do this. I'm to humble myself. And then I think it's Psalms 121, where um, the the psalmist is talking. I think it's Psalm of David. And he's talking about um, uh, like a weaned calf, I have quieted and composed myself. Basically, I'm happy where I am. I'm happy where I'm at. Yeah. And, and instead of having this, you know, this drive to be a, you know, an Instagram influencer and to be famous and to be you know, to have a bunch of money and to have just be happy and satisfied with what God has already given us. Amen. And that's not a thing to do because, you know, I'll be honest, guys, the, the brand new Ford, uh, Ford Bronco just came out and I want one. <laughs> You're speaking. I, I desperately want one. And I've got and this battle I have between I, okay, maybe, maybe I will get one, but I certainly don't need one. Right. And, and it's, it's that constant fight of my flesh and my spirit. And mm -hmm. the fight is to make sure that my spirit's stronger than my flesh so we can beat my flesh down. Well, and that's, I mean, I'm even kicking myself now. I noticed last night, and this is very minor, and then we'll get into the question aspect of the conversation. But, yeah. you know, I'm noticing last night, I'm like, man, you just need to just lay off the food, man. I'm talking to myself. I'm coaching myself <laughs> here. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm not, I'm not by all means huge or anything, but at the end of the day, I know I'm out of shape and I know I need to watch what I eat. I know I need to do this and the other. So I'm killing yeah. it, man. I went and played golf yeah. this morning. I, I had a sandwich. That's all I had. And yeah. then outside of that, I had, uh, I got home. I hadn't had nothing. And then we go pick my daughter up from school and my wife pulls into Baskin Robbins. <laughs> right. And she goes, and then I, I promise you, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at it and I feel my flesh saying, <laughs> you want that ice cream cone with that cookie dough ice cream. And I'm uh, like, but my mind and my heart is telling me, yeah, but you're not supposed to be doing it. Right. But what did I, what ended up happening? I got the ice cream and I got the, <laughs> I got the, I got the cone. So, yeah. so the point of saying all that is, is when you, when you don't stand tall in your faith and when you don't right. rely upon your faith to be the cornerstone of everything that you are, it's not yep. meaning that you can't, you ain't going to slip up and have that ice cream every once in a while. Well, but, 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 having ice cream isn't necessarily a slip up. Now, no. you, last night, it was. That was the conviction you felt. Right. But yeah, you will. But, yeah, exactly. So the, the, the idea is, is to be able to pick yourself up, learn where you slipped, understand who your cor- yeah. cornerstone is, and focus it on that. Yeah. Uh, you said the Bronco. Yeah. I got my camera. I got my son up here now. This is my son Tyler. How you doing, sir? Hey, Tyler. <laughs> and uh, this is my junior at UK. And uh, you said you said Bronco. And it's funny that when you said that, his eyes lit up. He looked at me. Because, Dude, they are beautiful. Because, I will. Well, I will say. Well, my this has been my dream car since I was a little kid. My grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, when we would visit them, he would lead singing. Not he wasn't a worship leader. He was a singing leader, or actually a singing leader is how they said it. <laughs> so. Um, when we would go visit Papa, he would I would go to church early with him, and he drove me to church in a nineteen I guess it would have been like a nineteen nineties mm. or nineteen eighties Ford Bronco, mm. and I loved that car. And so when he died in two thousand three, he still had the Bronco. And I told my dad and my two uncles, y'all, I don't care how y'all split up the things, I want the Bronco. That's all I want. <laughs> right. Who drove it for? He didn't really drive drive it. He parked it in his garage, sold it. And I had told him I wanted it. And mm. so about five years ago, I went and bought myself an old, um, actually, I say old. It was the oldest one at the time. Or actually, this one time. It was in 1996. Unfortunately, an OJ White, you know, OJ, uh, White one. So everybody, <laughs> and that's what they think of. But I had an old Bronco, and then my I had uh, property tax due a couple years ago. So I had to sell it to pay my property tax. But the new ones, yeah, not only are they gorgeous, they just, it's a poor Bronco. Why yeah. Would you want I, uh... it? Well, I, I tell you, I'm sitting there watching TV, and I get this text popped up on my phone. And I'm looking at the picture. I'm like, is this really a Ford Bronco? <laughs> really? Are, are they making these now? And he comes. Oh yeah. He oh, comes dude, trotting downstairs, and they're beautiful. Listen, they they have been threatening or basically teasing us uh, for about seven years that they're going to bring it back, and really? finally, yeah, it's it's been it's one of those things that I have followed very very closely, <laughs> and of course, the year it finally comes out, I decide to get married. So now I have to get permission. Yeah. <laughs> our money and to buy Bronco. And so I'm not sure it's going to happen. That's funny. Uh, Tyler here with, uh, with the podcast. Tyler is a huge Christian content creator. Uh, I don't know about huge, but uh, you're, you're big enough. Son. <laughs> he's, he's got a little over 50,000 followers on TikTok, and he does the Instagram thing and the whole nine yards on everything else. So he knows more about social media than, than I do, uh, which doesn't really take too much. Uh, but he does all of our uh, social media work and, He's going to ask a couple of questions from a couple okay. of the listeners out there that's already responded. So, Tyler, okay. take it away, buddy. Yeah, and real quick, I just want to say I liked what you said about the whole Instagram influence and thing and whatever. And it's all, all right. And one thing that – because I'm in a group. I'm in a group of different Christian content creators. And yeah. one thing we, we like – often talk about all the time is letting the spirit lead us it's like don't yeah. let don't let the numbers get a hold of your brain yeah. and when numbers are down get right, frustrated I'm, or I I, yeah and i think it's smart as Stu as far as thinking about numbers but let me ask you this and i don't know how tiktok works with this i don't really know how instagram works with this but can you save um like for me it's twitter right that's my biggest follower mm-hmm. um and so i sit there and think about how many saved tweets i have in in my Twitter account, meaning I had a tweet that was ready to hit send, and I wisely said, "Let me think about this yeah. for a couple hours." And I mean, I've got I've got thousands of them that I go I, I look back from time to time and I cringe and I think, Man, "Thank God <laughs> on that trash," because whatever it was, and it could be for various reasons. Most of the time, it was just a fleshy tweet. It was yeah. just about my ego and about me wanting to say something about you know. This is basically what a lot of social media is. Yeah. It's narcissism it's let me tell you what's going on in my life now 
you can use it to edify. You can use it to just or, or to or to um, um, uh, to confirm. I mean, you can, you can use it to build people up. But man, it's, there's so much of it. Especially, I, I I stopped reading. I'll still post on Twitter, but I stopped reading Twitter and a lot of social media when I realized I I'm not I'm not leaving this experience filled with joy. I'm not leaving this experience. I, in fact, I'm I'm leaving it. I feel worse after I get off of social media. Yeah. And then I realized I don't know that anyone's opinion or thought has ever been changed by by a Twitter post. Right. Now they can be again. The other people agree with them, and they can. But I don't. I don't think ever, anyone's ever won an argument on Twitter. And I just thought it's just for me. It's just kind of this waste of time that I felt like I was getting addicted to. And so I had to pull back. And I'll tell you, I pulled back during COVID. I pulled back in the last three or four years, and man, my my life is just so much happier. I can imagine. Oh, I guarantee it. I actually deleted Twitter like a few nights ago. <laughs> to be honest with you, um, I just <laughs> yeah. Well, it got to the point to where Twitter for me was like. It was like it wasn't a go-to anymore because I used to be all yeah. over Twitter, yeah. and then it yeah. got to the point to where it's like I go on my Twitter feed and I see so much that I either don't want to see or I'm just like, what right. is the point of fighting in yeah. a Twitter thread over whatever? So I got rid of that, and then yeah. I'm doing this whole TikTok thing, and and it is kind of the same thing. You can you can save drafts, uh, you can record a video, okay. and then save yeah. it to a draft and choose whether yeah. or not you want to post it, yeah. and um, that so that is a thing. But yeah, so we've got. Some well, cool. questions from okay. from different people. Go ahead. Uh, and this one's from my buddy uh, Ben Jones. He says, "Who is the best player that he ever played against?" Uh, all right. So the best player that I let's see. Uh, um, it, it's kind of tricky because I was on the bench against some very good players, but I wasn't in the game, never guarded them. So I can't really say I played against them, but right. um, I, there were like Stephon Marbury, uh, Tim Duncan, um, uh, Keith Van Horn, um, you know, some of those guys. But honestly, the best guys, I, the, the best, the most talented people that I actually did guard, I guarded in practice every day. Yeah. Absolutely. The best talent I played against all the time was, was my teammates. Yeah, I believe I, it. I mean, it wasn't a matter of, you know the star on their team. It was I got I got to deal with seven stars on this team that I'm supposed to guard, and I can't guard one of them. <laughs> yeah, imagine next one. That's awesome. Um, okay, and then this next one here is actually from my buddy Jacob Taylor. He is um, currently a bo- college ball player down at Mississippi College, and he says, "How do you stay successful but also stay locked in on Christ?" <laughs> um. Well, it's been, I guess it depends on how you would define successful. So. I, when I started my ministry, I defined it in a very worldly way. Um, and now I would define success ministry-wise as, you know, you know, there are guys like Bob Russell who basically created Southeast Christian, right? Right. Um, I mean, that Bob Russell, if you ever meet him, he is not who you expect. I mean, I, look, I, I've seen some, some pastors at Megachurch, and they kind of are what you expect them to be. But then there's Bob Russell who, who, who started this what is turned what is this enormous church now in Louisville and Bob Russell is one of the most unassuming most humble people you will ever meet and that but he's a he's in some sense a rarity um you know if you're talking about you know the the, the church world what I find what, the people that I'm I'm in awe of and I didn't used to be in awe of them I used to have a very worldly view of them but to me the, the heroes of the faith the, the heroes of, of church and of ministry um are the people who get up every Sunday prepare all week a message and get up and preach to 16 people out in a country church in the middle of Kentucky. They, they get no fame. They have no glory as far as glory. There's, there's no, you know, they're not preaching to 30,000 people the way that you know, we tend to think of what success in a ministry is. No, but they're faithful to the thought God has given them. Um, that, that's how I define success now in a ministry sense. Um, Honestly, in the the rest of the world, it's just a matter, or the rest of my life, which outside of ministry, I've got another job. It's just a matter of being happy and being humble. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I feel I'm feeling fulfilled because I feel like I'm making a difference, even if it's just to one person today. That fulfills me. Um, and then, how, I mean, how to stay, you know, in the middle of this world, how to stay there. One of the biggest mistakes I made right before my first marriage was that I'm making one of the biggest decisions of my life and I am not on my knees as much as I should have been. I was not in the word as much as I should have been. I was not in the in corporate worship as much as I should have been. So when 
doubts started coming in and red flags started going up that maybe this wasn't the, the woman for me, I ignored those because I didn't, I wasn't hearing from God. I thought I was, but mm-hmm. I couldn't possibly have been because I wasn't listening. I, I wasn't on my knees enough. Being on my knees wasn't about me sitting about me praying to God and telling him stuff. Being on my knees about me listening to him. And I wasn't in a position to listen to the right decision. So to me, it's a matter of the disciplines of our faith, the things that we do not to be saved, but the things that we do because he saves us. Amen. We do those things. And when we do those things, then we have a much better opportunity of staying successful in a definition of how he would define success, not necessarily how the world would. Right. That's great. That's and that's all we had for uh, for social media. So, all right. I guess my part here is done. Uh, it was nice talking to you. Hey, you too, brother. Uh, and, and listen, get, get that get that uh, Bronco because I'm. I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bronco, we will drive in the middle of a Walmart uh, parking lot. We'll show them off. All yeah. right, hey, that sounds cool to me. <laughs> all right, Marcus. All right, God bless you. you. All right, you too, guys. All right, here, hey, cameraman, I greatly appreciate it, uh, guys. That's the wrap up here of Flow Podcast. Uh, episode whatever it is whatever it is <laughs> we, we don't episode it but uh we uh it's been a blessing uh, i definitely felt the spirit here cameron we greatly appreciate uh once again you being on the the podcast with us this week and uh look forward to continuing a possible relationship down the road and uh it, it's really meant a lot thank you so much yeah, yeah. i appreciate it. listen thanks for putting so much thought into questions too it's fun Hey, we appreciate it. You know, we've actually broke our record of longest episode with you, plus oh, most well, famous with you. So uh, it's been good. I could have told you that you were that you were probably going to break the longest episode re- uh, record because I, I I tend to answer one short questions with long answers. Yeah, and and, and you you can pr- you can talk pretty fast too, which is good. You uh, know, it's not always good. It's, it's, <laughs> I think it's good until I get you know that little lady at the church saying, "I just couldn't hear a word you said because you talk so fast, sweetie." <laughs> I, I I get that all the time when I preach, and I uh, like that's, that's one of those humbling moments too. Yeah, when I would go up to preach for our pastor or whatever, he'd always remind me, yeah. slow it down." <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm bad, and you know what? I've had guys, I've had people in the media, I've had uh, pastors. I, you know, it's probably the, the best advice I always get from them is slow down. You talk too fast. <laughs> but hey, it's you got a lot of say in a short amount of time to say it, so it's it's yeah. good. <laughs> I'm, I'm long-winded. Uh, you know that. I, I get very long-winded when I preach. Uh, yep. But nevertheless. Let's, uh, let's close it out. I've been Marcus. I'm J-Log. Deuces. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check out flowpodcast.org to send in your questions or topics and get your official Flow merch. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok to get your faith life and off-the-wall fix during the week. Till next time, and remember to go with the flow.